So today, we continue our series in the life of Moses. For those of you that have, haven't been here, uh, you're welcome to jump online on our podcast and get caught up on that series. It's been quite a journey as we explored uh, Moses, uh, born uh, to an Israelite family in slavery in Egypt by the miraculous hand of God, was spared death at birth and then raised actually in Pharaoh's household under uh, by uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, for 40 years, he lived as an Israelite in Egypt in an Egyptian household until eventually he fled the country at about 40 years old for the next 40 years of his life. He's a shepherd living out in the wilderness, in the desert. He marries, uh, and then at 80 years old, God calls Moses at, at a burning bush. He says, uh, free my people. I want you to go back to Egypt and free my people. And Moses argues, and uh, God does not back down, and uh, Moses agrees, and he goes. And again, by the powerful hand of God, uh, the, the Israelite people are freed from their slavery in Egypt, and they leave the land of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea where God parts the sea, and then it comes crashing back in to defeat the army of Pharaoh. And now, in our text, they're at the foot of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai is the other name it's called by. It's called the Mountain of God. And for one year after being released from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites are here at the foot of the Mountain of God. They're receiving the law, the Ten Commandments. They're um, reconfirming the covenant that God made originally with Abraham, their forefather, saying, I'll make you into a great nation, numerous descendants. Um, I will give you this promised land, Canaan. Uh, And now we find ourselves in the story of God's covenant where the Israelite people, slaves uh, for hundreds of years, are now freed from slavery, and now they find themselves at the mountain of God, in the presence of God, awaiting the next step in their journey. So last week we read as Moses received the Ten Commandments up on the mountain, uh, and in in 40 days of him being gone from their presence, uh, they've already made uh, an idol, a golden calf, and begin to worship it as their God. Moses comes down, and God, uh, according to the terms of covenant, um, the people would have been destroyed in this, but Moses pleads for the people, and God relents, and now we find themselves in this in-between period. Now, the tabernacle has not been built yet. Sarah described that a number of weeks ago. That will be the the meeting place for God. That that will be where the Israelites go to meet God as they travel towards the promised land. Um, At this point, Moses has a place, though. We're going to talk this morning about the presence of God. Moses has a tent that he sets up on the edge of the camp, and he meets with God. Let's talk about the presence of God this morning. Text is in Exodus 33, beginning in verse 7. It says, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside of camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. 
So we have here this tent of meeting, the place that Moses would go to experience and to meet with God, to be in the presence of God. Now, this is kind of the temporary tent for the tabernacle, which will be the temporary tent for the temple that eventually will be built once Israel takes the promised land. But this is initially the place where Moses would frequently go, and the people would see Moses go to the tent. They'd stand and they'd worship. They'd know this is the place where Moses is in the presence of God. The text says that that God would speak to Moses as one friend speaks to another. This is a fascinating moment in the story of God and his interaction. You know, we call this series a series on the life of Moses, but ultimately, like all biblical narrative, really the the primary character in the text is God, right? And Moses is uh, this uh, other character whom through through whom we get to learn about our, our interactions with God. We get to learn from those that came before us about what it looks like to walk with God. And this is a fascinating moment in the story of God and his work with humanity because everything else in the story of Exodus had to do with God's power. Leading up to this point, over and over, we've been seeing God's great power, right? In the 10 plagues, he defeated all the, he, he defeated the gods of Egypt, even Pharaoh, the, the God king of Egypt, right? So he has defeated the gods of Egypt with powerful acts, as he parts the Red Sea and destroys the army of Pharaoh, as he leads his people by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, we see God's power over and over. Even in this moment, as they're at Mount Horeb, as Moses is going up to receive the tablets, there's fire and there's lightning and all these things. We see God's power over and over. And then we see in this text, this really unique glimpse into an all-powerful God who would talk to Moses as a friend talks to a friend face to face. Now, this isn't the first time I've, I've had to acknowledge. I've not had the same experience as Moses has had, this face-to-face interaction or this conversation as a friend would speak to another. But we read of it in this text. A God who came near and would be in the presence of Moses and to talk with him. Now, Uh, Joshua, uh, one last thing in this text before we go on, um, is the future leader of Israel. He is the one that will lead the Israelites into this promised land. Eventually, Moses will die in the desert, and then soon after, Joshua will lead the Israelite people into this promised land, and in fact, to conquer it. And so, we get this fascinating little glimpse into the life of Joshua. He's an aide to Moses, and Moses goes to the tent, meets with God, and as Moses returns back to his camp, Joshua apparently would stay there at the tent of meeting. I'm struck by this in the story of Joshua in this text. Leaders are made long before they have a leadership position. And we see in Joshua just this tiny little glimpse into his life, staying where God's presence is. He would stay at the tent. I believe this is a foreshadowing, a little glimpse of what it looks like to to develop into a leader, a person staying near the presence of God. So we continue in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, uh, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Maybe this is speaking of Joshua in the verse previous. You said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. 
The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the peoples of the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live." Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Fascinating and curious um, text. Uh, I, you know, I often highlight things I want to come back to and talk to, and then I have a gray highlight on things that I'm just not sure about this. How does this work? And so we've got gray highlights in the text today. Uh, as God describes, you cannot see my face, and I'll cover this cleft of the rock with my hand, but that you'll see my back. What I do know in this text today is that God is inviting Moses even deeper into this relationship. Um, so it begins with, I know, you, I know you by name, and you found favor with me. God expressing his um, commitment to, his nearness to, his fondness for this man, Moses. And so Moses' response out of this place is, so God, teach me your ways. Let me know more of you. And God's promise to Moses is, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Okay, again, our text today is all about the presence of God. We've got this tent of meeting. We've got these conversations happening between Moses and God. And Moses says, let me know more of you, God. And God's promise to him is, my presence will go with you. I will be present with you even as you go out from this place. And his promise is, I will give you rest. Now, this is brought up again. In fact, Jesus alludes to these very same things when he says to his followers, you that are uh, heavy burden, weary and heavy burden, come and I will give you rest. This is the promise of the presence of God in the Old Testament, in the Exodus story, in the life of Moses. It's a promise of Jesus to his people, come to me with your brokenness, your weariness, and I will give you rest. In the presence of God, rest is found. And as the story continues, Moses says, okay, then yes, do come with us. May we know your presence. And then he says, you have to come with us. Otherwise, just don't send us out. We don't want to leave your presence here at the mountain of God unless you will travel with us from this place. Because he says, what else will distinguish your people from all the other people of the face of the earth? What except for the presence of God might distinguish a people? Moses is alluding to this reality that the nations of the world will see something different in Israel if God is present in their life. At this point, we're not making the transition to application and conversation in our life, but I hope you're beginning to hear it already. The presence of God will be a distinguishing factor. People will see something different where God is present in our lives. And so God invites Moses even deeper into relationship. 
They, it begins with, they talked like friends. It says, I know your name. God knows Moses' name, and God has revealed to Moses his name. And in Hebrew, this has to do with much more than just a name. It refers to being known. It's a much deeper concept than just the actual name itself. It is to know God. So, that, so Moses knows God, and he talks with them like a friend. And then Moses says, okay, let's take this relationship one step further. Let me see you. And to what extent God can, he does. This is the depth of the nearness and friendship that Moses had with God. This is the presence of God in the life of Moses. Now, after this text, and, and we're not going to read it today, you can go back and read it if you'd like. Uh, Moses uh, is sent back up on the mountain to re-receive the tablets that he had smashed when he found the Israelites uh, worshiping other gods. And he returns down from meeting with God this time, and his face is glowing like the presence of God. Is that a physical effect on him? It's a fascinating story. Moses spoke with God as a friend. He knew God. And the question we begin to ask now today is, what about us? There's this fascinating movement in Scripture as the presence of God is rooted first in this tent of meeting, then in the tabernacle, and then, then in the temple. And so there was these courts, and as you moved inward towards the presence of God, there was all sorts of extra ceremony. Only certain people were allowed to enter the presence of God, and even that only one time a year would they enter the Holy of Holies. But God traveled with his people in the tabernacle. God was there in the temple in Jerusalem. And now, uh, as the story continues, not now today, but as the story continues, uh, the presence of God shows up in a whole new way in the character of Jesus. We understand and believe that Jesus was God in human flesh. So just imagine the shift in this tale of God's presence from a temple and an isolated place and only very particular individuals could enter into the presence of God to now God walking amongst us. And right, this was blowing the minds of Israelites, and many didn't believe, and many argued, and eventually they had him crucified because of the confusion of it. But the biblical narrative and the witnesses of those that walked with Jesus, he has come, God has come into our presence in physical form. And so for three years of his public ministry, Jesus is traveling from place to place, teaching people about God. And God's presence is literally amongst them literally standing before them, teaching them in this moment. And shortly before his death, he makes this beautiful, maybe confusing promise to his people. He, he says to them, it's actually good that I'm going away because when I go, the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And in that, we begin to catch a glimpse of the next movement in the presence of God. I think I'd be remiss as we talk about presence not to back up for one moment and say presence began in a garden where God walked with humanity, where he uh, declared them good and he walked with them and they gave them purposeful interaction in this beautiful place as they would together care for God's good creation, right? Okay, and, and then that's broken as, as they eat of uh, the forbidden tree and then sin is in the world and there's all this chaos. But God, through Abraham, said, no, I want to be present with humanity and I want to bring healing to this world. And so that story began. And then we have the tabernacle and the temple and God's presence. And then Jesus, and then Jesus makes this wild promise. No, the next phase of God's presence in this world will look quite different. It's good, in fact, that I, God, in human form, am going away because the next is even better. 
the Holy Spirit will come. And if you'll take time this week, I'd encourage you to read um, the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts. It's the story of the Holy Spirit coming and the beginning of the church and these remarkable things happening and all the confusion as this movement moves from simply an Israelite movement to a worldwide movement that we've now been adopted into some 2,000 years later. The Holy Spirit comes in remarkable ways, but this is the presence of God. The promise of Jesus was that God would dwell in humanity, that we would be the new temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would dwell in our lives. Now, depending on your church background, your upbringing, what experience you have with faith, uh, we are very diverse people denominationally, so a lot of us have very differing experiences with the Holy Spirit. Some of us have had incredibly powerful experiences, and we kind of could say, yeah, I mean, I I talk with God. I know the presence of God, kind of like we saw in the story of Moses. And then some of us have very little experience or conversation with the Holy Spirit. It's this conceptual thing that we've heard about. Scripture talks about it. But why don't I feel much? Why doesn't much happen in me because of that? The promise is great. I mean, Jesus (laughs) says it in the most uh, blunt terms. This is so good what is coming. It's far better than me walking amongst you. The Holy Spirit will dwell with you. And so why sometimes don't I feel it? Here's what I'd propose today. God is present, but we are not. God is present, and he's inviting us, and we're not showing up to the meeting. Okay? That's going to be my proposal for today, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, I'm, I'm going to propose today, we talked last week about the continual decision to walk in the way of Jesus And talked a little bit about muscle memory. Uh, If you're a musician or an athlete or so many things in life, if you notice how as we practice them over and over, they just become natural. Our bodies, our hands, or whatever knows how to perform these things without any thought given to them. We're going to talk about this idea of if God is already present, maybe it's that I'm not showing up to the meeting myself. And so maybe there's some practices in my life that could invite me to know the presence of God more fully. And some practices in life that might just become second nature, muscle memory. I will come to know a more constant presence of the Holy Spirit by participating in these spiritual disciplines, these spiritual practices in my life. Now, I grew up in a tradition that that told you just read your Bible and pray more, okay? Uh, and, And it was just really simple. Those are the two things you have to do, and it'll all work out. But I want to tell you something profound today about the presence of God. I think you would know more of the presence of God if you read your Bible and you prayed more. Right? Like, I'm not going to diverge from that. It is so true that as we spend time in God's Word, it it will lead us towards the presence of God. It will lead us towards knowing this God. And it is so true that in prayer, we will go deeper in our relationship with Him, and we won't go deeper without that. Uh, That's going to be central. But today, though, though really the formula is still going to have to do with, I've, I've come to love Lectio Divina, a slower reading of Scripture that allows me to experience in different ways. There's a lot of new in this concept of reading Scripture and praying that has been so revolutionary in my life and the life of so many others. So today, let me spend a few minutes talking about prayer, and, uh, and, and I think this is just a remarkable subject. Um, 
Dan Rathers, a very famous news anchor for um, CBS, once interviewed Mother Teresa. And in this interview, um, he asked her, so when you pray, what do you say? Mother Teresa says, I listen. Yes, when you pray, what do you say? We would all assume prayer involves us talking, right? Uh, And Mother Teresa says, I listen. And he's a little bit confused, but he turns the question and he says, okay, well then what does God say when you pray? And uh, she smiles, this confident smile, and she answers, he listens. How curious is this? And, uh, and for an instant, Dan's kind of shocked. And how, how do you interview someone like this, right? How do, I, how do I take this further? And so he just pauses kind of confused. And she says, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. What a beautiful interview. Oh, my goodness. What do you do when you pray? I listen. Uh, what, what do you say when you pray? I just listen. And what is God saying to you then? No, he's just listening. Listen to that description of prayer. It is a conversation of presence, not performance, not something I do. I don't have to have magical words. It's a conversation of I am present with God, and he is present with me, and I want more of that in my life. So let's talk about prayer in some slightly different terms than maybe we've talked about it in the past. In the 4th and 5th centuries, uh, the desert fathers and mothers, these are nuns and monks, uh, went out into the desert. Uh, in pursuit of connecting with God in in new and in relevant ways. Now, they didn't go out in the desert to hide and to stay there, but instead they went into a place of solitude and stillness to pursue the presence of God that they might bring back to the church practices that would invite all of us into the presence of God. Out of these desert fathers and mothers has come some beautiful practices. Um, currently, I'm in, uh, it's called the Academy for, of Spiritual Formation, and I'm one year into a two-year uh, term or sentence, whatever you want to call it. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's a beautiful thing. It's so wonderful. Uh, twice a year, we go and meet at a monastery in um, yeah, outside of Portland, Oregon, and uh, I mean, the material is so challenging and beautiful, and the invitation to practices that invite us into the presence of God has been absolutely so remarkable. I'm going to mention a few today, but we can't go into detail on these today. If anything, I just hope it sparks your imagination to say, like, my daily rhythms, my prayer life, my engagement with God, maybe it could look a little bit different than it ever has in the past. So I want to talk about a a few prayer practices. These are ancient Christian practices. Some of them are going to sound a little like Eastern religion practices. Please understand and hear me say clearly, these are Christian practices that are centuries and centuries old, okay? So we're going to talk about praying in the presence of God. The first I want to mention is centering prayer. In centering prayer, uh, the goal is really to clear our minds and to be present with God. We don't do much speaking. In fact, typically in centering prayer, you would choose a phrase that brings you back when your mind starts to wonder. Uh, Henry Nouwen describes the process of going into solitude and silence with God. Um, He says, uh, but as soon as I get to that place, um, all of my thoughts and dreams and lusts and everything else in my mind go jumping around like monkeys in a banana tree. This is Henry Nouwen's description of trying to be silent with God, of centering prayer. It's incredible. 
incredibly challenging, uh, and I am terrible at it. This is by far the least successful practice uh, of what I've been challenged to. But a place of silence where for five or up to 20 minutes, you can just sit and be still. If you choose a centering word, something like peace or be still. Every time my mind wanders, I simply am reminded of that word, and I sit in the presence of God. And my little experience with it has been good, but the experience of my friends that are teaching me these sorts of practices to experience the presence of God speak of how remarkable it is to go from the beginning of my day, having been filled up by the presence of God, and then to go out from that place. Welcoming prayer is one that's been beautiful for me and actually quite helpful. Um, This is something that could be done while walking, while experiencing something, someone says something, or something happens to us, and our body or our emotions are reacting in that moment. And welcoming prayer is an invitation to pause, to just analyze what am I feeling physically, what am I feeling emotionally, what's happening in this moment, to sink into it, to let it be, not to judge it, or anything like that, to welcome it saying, in whatever this experience is, I believe God has purpose, right? God is present even in this. And so we welcome that feeling of anxiety, or we welcome that pain that always seems to crop up when we get too busy or frantic. We welcome it. It is here and now, and then we let go, particularly of control, saying, I don't need to control this. But instead, we say, welcome, whatever is happening in this moment, and then we let go of control, knowing that God is in control in that moment. It's been a beautiful one for me. Uh, Breath prayers you might be familiar with. This is simply a a phrase. So you might use something like, um, peace be still. Um, I, I mentioned earlier for a different prayer, but as we breathe in, peace. And as we breathe out, be still. Just a practice of using simple words, biblical concepts, to draw us into the presence of God as we invite all of ourself into that moment. A few weeks ago, Sarah talked about um, Yahweh and and Ruah, the breath of God, the life-giving breath of God, right? And so as we sit in stillness and we breathe, we pray to God. And finally, I'll mention the examine. And this is often done at the end of the day, and I've got descriptions of this. I'd love to talk with you more about these in detail. But the examine um, is a process of first playing back our day, kind of what did I experience in the last 24 hours? And just allowing those things to replay in no particular order, just what are the experiences of my week? What's been happening? We give thanks to God for what we have experienced. Again, we're not judging these experiences, but just thanking God that we have experienced these things. In our review process, the Holy Spirit guides us into maybe some particular things that stand out, some moments of significance over the course of the last day. Um, We look at what's wrong, at shortcomings, at failures we may have experienced. And again, we don't do so to judge ourselves or to beat ourselves up. We just acknowledge, wow, uh, there was some hurt or some brokenness or some things that took place in my day. 
And then we move towards looking ahead. Uh, what is to come? It's beautiful, the therapeutic practice of in the presence of God, just experiencing and exploring with the Holy Spirit. God, what have you brought my way and for what purpose and how it, might it propel me into the next day ahead? So there are many ways we can talk about prayer. Many of these are probably new to us. And if you would like to go deeper in these, not only can we give you resources, Sarah and I have been considering getting together for maybe like an eight-week small group and just practicing some of these things together, allowing people to try those sorts of things out. And I know we have partners that would do that with us. So if you would like to uh, either participate in, in helping make some of this happen um, or just participate in it, please talk with us. It'll probably be in the new year that we're able to, to look at doing something like that. But I hope this conversation has sparked in us something, um, something about the presence of God. First of all, a desire to know more of God. And secondly, a realization that the things that I've tried in the past that maybe didn't work great, or maybe I'm just kind of burned out on trying any longer, there is new, beautiful opportunity for the course ahead. And what's remarkable is this new opportunity is nothing new. <laughs> We're talking uh, 1,500 years old. If we could be drawn back in to some of the practices that the church throughout history has come to know more fully the presence of God, what a rich and beautiful place to be. Finally, I'll mention as we talk about the presence of God, um, for a person like me, uh, the sitting in silence is not the easiest way for me to connect with God. In fact, it would be out on a walk in nature uh, or, or something like that, and that is entirely okay. We are embodied persons. Like, we are not a soul and a body. We are a soul embodied. It is all one. And to what extent we can bring all of ourself into the presence of God is a very good thing. So I would propose to you to exercise, to walk. And Scripture speaks of this. I mean, as I'm out in nature, uh, Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. That's speaking of nature. And I'm like, yes, when I get out there, I hear from God, and somehow the beauty of his creation draws me more fully into his presence. One of, one of the things that we've talked about, um, Sarah, myself, and, and a few other in the church, um, Labyrinth, uh, it's, it's a walking trail. Maybe you've seen one that's kind of circular, and Labyrinth has been used in the church for prayer for, again, centuries and centuries. As you walk in, you're releasing all that is, and at the center, as you arrive at that place, uh, it's a moment of receiving and you can stand and receive from God. And as we walk back out, we are returning to the world, inviting God to lead us in new ways, right? These are just physical, embodied ways of praying and inviting the presence of God. So I'm going to transition and we're going to close out in just a couple minutes here um, as we talk about the final embodied practice of the presence of God. It began at a Passover feast. Jesus was sitting with his closest followers and uh, there's bread, and there's wine on the table, and they're eating. And then in the middle of that feast, uh, he, he pauses. Now, the feast they're experiencing, Passover, it, it's born of this Exodus story, right? It's that 10th plague 
where an animal sacrificed and the blood painted on the doorpost would be the salvation of the Israelite people. The angel of death would pass over them, and shortly after, they're freed to move out, a free people now. And Jesus, at that Passover feast, remembering that sacrificial lamb and the blood that was spilled, he said, I'm going I'm to repurpose what this is. In fact, all of Exodus was foreshadowing of what Jesus would come and do. He says, this bread, as you break it, this is my body that'll be broken for you. And this, this fruit of the vine, this wine, as you drink it, remember me, this is my blood poured out. Matthew 26, 26, hear the words from him. And in a moment, we're going we're gonna to take communion together. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he gave thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So we take communion, and the church for thousands of years now, uh, on a weekly basis, takes communion. Realize that as we do this, the experience that we have of prayerfully taking communion uh, is not an isolated moment for me but instead done in community. This is communion. Also done in community with God and further done in some sort of spiritual sense with Christians over the past 2,000 years as we continue to partake in this beautiful ritual, this beautiful ceremony, this beautiful time of remembering Jesus' body and blood. It invites us into a 2,000-year tradition of proclaiming to the world that it didn't end in a broken body and the blood, but instead he rose again and invites us also to new life. So today, our final movement, and we'll close out after this, will be communion. I'm going to ask you to do this. We place the communion at the center, kind of representative, symbolic of the fact that as we gather here today, it is Christ at the center of what we do and why we're here. So we have the elements, the bread, and the fruit of the vine. Um, if you will walk over and grab those and bring them back to your seat, we're going to take communion together at the same time. Um, just again, a beautiful symbol of the togetherness and the community experience of this. Know that there are um, regular bread options and there is a gluten-free option. Um, so at this point, uh, I'm going to pause for just a moment. We're all going to grab communion. Anyone that wants to take communion, you are not at all required to. Take it back to your seat. We'll take communion together and close out. So as Jesus did at that feast 2,000 years ago, we give thanks. God, we are thankful um, for your love, for your nearness, for your presence, for a story that spans thousands of years. God, you inviting us deeper and deeper into your presence to the extent that you would come to dwell in us. Thank you for your presence. Teach us, God, to show up, uh, to know your presence as we break bread. As, it, as we take fruit of the vine, uh, God, we are thankful. Uh, we remember and we are thankful for Jesus' body broken and his blood shed. And God, we're thankful that he rose again. And we have hope of new life as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Take the bread with me. And his blood poured out.
Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.